The Retrograde Approach, Episode 14, The Paclitaxel Controversy with Professor Ramon Varco. to the Retrograde Approach podcast. I'm your host, Sam Farah, and I'm joined by my friend, as always, Dr. Yogi-san Sivakumaran. Yogi. Mate, what a time to record a podcast in the middle of the um, Tokyo 2020 Olympics. Sam Farah, Tibial Hunter, are you excited? The Australians are doing great. We've got gold medals coming out of every part of the competition here. Swimmers are doing great. Athletics are on at the moment. Jeez, and in the midst of all of that, you've you've signed us up for this amazing podcast. Yeah, yeah I topic. struggle. I struggle to keep your attention at the best of times. Throw the Olympics into the mix, and uh, I don't think we're going to get anything done this evening, mate. This is this is an enormous episode, and um, you know the Paclitaxel controversy um, has really been on the forefront of the vascular surgical community for the last few years, but. Um, it's an ever ever changing landscape and as soon as you think that the the initial meta-analysis has been uh, resolved another one seems to come out and even in the weeks since um, our interview with professor ramon barco there's been a subsequent meta-analysis that has been uh, released by the Ketsanos group um, and it seems that we are in the era where evidence of harm versus benefit are constantly tested when it comes to the use of paclitaxel in our practice, Sam. Paclitaxel pandemic continues, Yogi. Well, pandemic questions, answers, who honestly knows what we're up to. But what I can say, Sam, the tibial hunter, that it is it is clear to me that you are a, you are a great user of the, of the paclitaxel when you need to, but so are a lot of vascular surgeons out there i know we've gone through a period of reviewing practice understanding its role but um it's pretty fair to say that uh, a lot of surgeons a lot of vascular surgeons and interventional radiologists still use paclitaxel in their practice so we've got a 30-minute interview with uh, professor varco who's recently released an updated meta-analysis or his group's meta-analysis on the topic but Maybe before we play that podcast, Yogi, or that recording, maybe we should just have a short uh, or spend some short amount of time just reviewing Paclitaxel and discussing um, what is it, why was it controversial, and then in the second half of this episode, we can then move on to the uh, interview with Professor Varco. Yeah, and fantastic. And uh, Sam, a full credit to you. I think a great discussion with Prof- Professor Varco in regards to drug eluding technology and his most recent meta-analysis. Um, and I think hopefully between the two of us, we can lead into that quite successfully. So Yogi, I know um, what, from your point of view, what, what is paclitaxel? And maybe after just discussing what is it, we can perhaps talk about why it became controversial. Yeah, so I guess drug eluding technology um, in peripheral vascular disease management has really been an evolution 
um, from its role in the coronary circulation. Where it's not new, right? It's been around for a long time. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, paclitaxel per se is one of many drugs that are used in a, uh, in a chemotherapeutic means of um, trying to reduce the inflammatory reaction that occurs after balloon angioplasty and stenting. Uh, but specifically, paclitaxel itself is a cytotoxic agent, which is um, isolated from the bark of the Pacific yew tree, which I'm certain you've planted a few in your backyard, Sam. I have three uh, growing at the moment. Well, when you've tapped them, let me know. Um, but paclitaxel was first registered um, by the FDA in 1992. And really, its use as a chemotherapeutic agent is well described in the management of several cancers in breast cancer, um, in Carposi sarcoma, in advanced non-small cell lung cancer, and advanced ovarian cancer. Um, but the doses at which uh, they're used in the peripheral vasculature are many times, many magnitude times less than what they're used for an oncological benefit. Um, and it is really um, the inhibition of neonatal hyperplasia following uh, angioplasty, especially in the femoral popliteal segment where drug-eluting technology has become really mainstream in art practice, Sam. Yeah, and uh, something Professor Varco um, stated early in the interview was it really became the standard of care. Um, it was demonstrated that paclitaxel reduces target lesion uh, restenosis or recurrence, and therefore you're doing your patients not quite a disservice, but in some instances, you know, you wanted to keep the target or the lesion patent and it was reasonable to then provide um, paclitaxel coded devices these range from balloons to stents um, until uh, some data was published in 2018. Yeah, look, and I think um, drug-eluting technology, both balloons and stents, have formed part of the paradigm of most vascular surgeons and interventional radiologists. From the femoral popliteal segment, there was definitely an era of concern about its use in the below-knee segment, uh, through the SFA impact trials. However, I think uh, it's become more and more evident of their role broadly um, from the groin down to the, uh, to the ankle. And I really think as we've evolved as um, interventionalists, both surgeons and interventional radiologists, there have become clear segments of the arterial vasculature, which really are uh, no stent segments. Um, and it is really within this, um, in these areas, such as the common femoral artery or the popliteal artery, uh, due to the high degree of mobility of those joints, that the combination of adjunctive measures, such as atherectomy, together with drug eluding technology, has really evolved. Um, I think the the second frontier, of course, with drug eluting stents, um, really in the sort of recalcitrant lesion with uh, recurrent restenosis or um, localized dissection post angioplasty for positive remodeling has definitely been another aspect to the two uh, drug eluting technologies. And Sam, I think, uh, despite the meta analysis in twenty eighteen. Uh, as a 
society of surgeons and interventionists were taking it on board to reassess the evidence, to go back, to figure out what the actual issues are, to critic, critique the evidence in front of us and to question whether what we're seeing is a true reflection of practice versus whether this is um, really an epidemiologist's wet dream to really demonstrate a p-value of less than 0.5. And um, I, I think your discussion later in this podcast with Prof Farco really brings that to the forefront. Yeah, so um, just moving on to the meta-analysis itself, once it came out, um, I suppose there are a few things to note. I, I think you could talk about this paper all day, but just the first thing to state was this was, um, the, in terms of the Katsanos paper, this was a meta-analysis of paclitaxel-coated balloons and stints in the femoral popliteal artery. And interestingly, like despite that, people stopped using you know, Zion's prime stents that they had Everolimus and there was really a drop-off in all sort of drug-eluting uh, technologies. Yeah, look, you know, uh, a, a survey conducted through the Australian Vascular Trials Network, uh, a trainee-led research network, demonstrated um, a 75% reduction amongst interventionists for the use of drug-eluting technology. And I think... Um, a lot of the leading authorities um, and specifically the FDA and subsequently the TGA did release health advisories in regards to this, which really did shift um, the thinking regarding uh, their use in practice. And that causes um, such a significant shift in the way uh, interventionalists looked at managing uh, disease paradigms and it's it's like an earthquake hit us for uh, for quite a period of time. These products were taken off the shelf um, or were removed uh, as as we were trying to get more information about what the meta analysis actually entailed. Sam, I guess um, for those of uh, for our listeners who may not have been acutely aware of some of the challenges to drug eluting technology, could you perhaps? very briefly provide some context as to what the meta-analysis is about. What, what, what are they trying to achieve here and what were they trying, what did they demonstrate? The, well, what he's trying to achieve, I, I, I think that's a, that's a important question. No one really knows what Katsonis was trying to achieve, but I think very early in his first meta-analysis, he brought something to people's attention, which was that, there was an increased signal or there was a sign that in patients who had the paclitaxel-coded uh, devices that there was, for whatever reason, an increased number of death, uh, sorry, an increased amount of death. And so he looked at three time points, one year, two years, five years. One year, there was no difference. And then two years, there was slightly some difference in the, the amount of people. Um, 68% relative increase, I believe, Sam. Yeah, and he even, you know, did things like reporting a number needed to harm of, I think, 29 for uh, two years for people. So, you know, um, that's not insignificant. And then five years, um, 78 deaths out of 529 patients in the paclitaxel arm and 27 out of 330 in the control arm, which is obviously, again, a significant increase. Um, I think 
one of the main things to note initially when you look at that is just a huge amount of drop-off in the number of studies. And as the time went on, the follow-up became increasingly poor. Um, in our interview with Ramon Varco, we'll go into this, this in a bit more depth, but this is the sort of crux in terms of the argument against this study is that once you increase the follow-up and look at actually what happened to patients, the difference then disappears essentially. Yeah, and you know the and the effect of this meta-analysis was huge. And as uh, Prof. Varco talks about, this came out during a big uh, endovascular meeting in Sydney, um, which uh, brings together some of the heavy hitters in the endovascular community across the world to Sydney. But the the meta-analysis resulted in a 30% reduction in paclitaxel device utilization globally and resulted in a 70% growth in conventional device use. Um, And really the challenge has been for vascular surgeons, interventional radiologists in terms of understanding what has been the consequence of that to that population group. Have we had to do more intervention, which we believe to be true? And have we um, caused more harm than good as a result of it? And that is perhaps yet to be borne out through long-term outcome data as a result. Needless to say, um, Sam, I think um, the, the, the sort of, um, we went through the period of um, back and forth of uh, commentators providing their two cents in regards to the significance of the meta-analysis and the potential biases that may exist within them. Um, and whilst back in the day, um, you would have um, the sort of eight mile M&M break it down sort of in a cipher, trying to wrap battle between <laughs> groups of institutions, we now are in a circumstance where people throw out meta-analysis in the cipher just to try and put themselves out there in terms of defending the position. Yep. And um, I think we as clinicians have to become much more able to critically analyze the information that's out there and to, and to then reflect on that in our practice, because that is fundamental to how we shift our own practice when it comes to this. Yeah, exactly. Um, The other thing to to say is when you look at the meta-analysis, one of the key criticisms is the, how strongly it was worded. Like I mean, there is a table in there that lists the causes of death for people in the paclitaxel arm and breaks it down in terms of cardiovascular cancer, infectious and pulmonary and really gives you the impression of causality. And I think that's one of the main criticisms is just sort of thrown out there into the ether for everyone to... Yeah, well, it, well it, it, it is. It's like a rap battle. Like it's just like put it out, see what happens. And as I think Ramon says, you know it wasn't allowed to go through the rigor of a community-based assessment before publication. It was just like, here it is, bang, take it or leave it and accept for, accept it for what it is. And there was shock value to it. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, obviously we're still talking about it to this day and every, yeah. every endovascular conference since then has been um, dominated by paclitaxel. Yeah. So maybe on that, Yogi, we'll... Um, move on to our interview with Professor Varko. 
Yeah, look, uh, apologies to the to our audience. You, I wasn't able to make it on the day, but Sam Farrow, the tibular hunter, did us all proud. Thanks, Yogi. We are now very excited to welcome Professor Ramon Varco to the Retrograde Poach podcast. Professor Varco is a vascular surgeon working at Sydney's Prince of Wales and Prince of Wales Private Hospitals, where he's a supervisor of vascular surgical training and director of the Vascular Institute. His busy clinical practice sees him specialising in the minimally invasive treatment of aortic aneurysm conditions, carotid disease, and the full gamut of occlusive arterial diseases of the lower limb. He's internationally renowned for his work in advanced limb salvage techniques. He also is an associate professor at the University of New South Wales, where he teaches at both undergraduate and postgraduate levels. Of course, uh, he's very well known for his work as the founder and course director of the much-loved and now uh, very missed Verve Symposium, and he's uh, well-renowned for his advanced uh, endovascular techniques and, of course, this uh, well-renowned and world-renowned endovascular summit. Professor Varko, uh, thank you for accepting our invitation to come on. Thanks, Sam. It's great to be here. I appreciate the invitation. So I think just to go back a few steps, um, I'm just curious to know what were your initial thoughts um, when you first heard that there was potentially an increased signal or a risk of uh, increased mortality with the use of paclitaxel-coded devices? Well, I think like many people in our field, it was a matter of disbelief. Um, the thought of us harming patients whilst obviously trying to do the best by their health and well-being was quite shocking to most of us. It was interesting. The paper broke at Verve 2018 while we're all on the boat heading to the gala dinner on the harbour. So it was quite timely that Dr. Katsanos was kind enough to drop this on us in the middle of Verve. Right. Uh, you know, but... In all seriousness, I think that if you rewind back to 2018, paclitaxel-coded devices were, uh, for all intents and purposes, the standard of care for peripheral interventions. And so at that time, the talk was all about, well, if you're not coding your device in paclitaxel, you're really wasting your time. Mm. So this couldn't have come as, as any more shocking uh, safety signal at, the, at back in 2018. Mm. And so did you alter your practice at all initially or did you um, dwell on what was being said for some time? I think we all paused for a moment trying to digest it, you know, and initially the reaction was really drilling down onto the methodology behind their meta-analysis to see whether it was sound because back then the immediate call from many experts in the field was that there are errors and mistakes um, both in terms of the data capture but also in terms of the way they process the meta-analysis. So um, first thoughts were, let's unpack this a little bit. Let's um, talk about it with the experts in the field and, and see if there's some legitimacy about this. Yeah. I mean, I think we you know, should uh, acknowledge Katsanos for bringing it to our attention. I don't think, um, I think that's important to recognise that or that will perhaps touch on some of the limitations of the initial meta-analysis shortly, but that should be acknowledged that he did bring some attention to something that was in the studies, although they obviously weren't powered for for death. But did you think that some of the initial language used in that meta-analysis was perhaps a bit strong? 
I think there was a lot of criticism about the word causality and the way that was used. And um, that kind of followed on from their dose gradient analysis, which people say to this day is flawed. You know, there's a number of reasons why that dosage analysis was incorrect and why we chose not to repeat it in our study. Mm -hmm. The biggest one was that they used time as a factor in their equation. So they made this equation up from scratch and they use time in there now what that does is if you put time in there that's always going to mean the dose exposure is higher in those mm. studies that have followed patients for a longer period so those studies that were collected at four and five years there was three of them you might recall they were always going to have a much higher dose and therefore um, that link with mortality was always going to be greater now since that time a number of much more sophisticated dose studies have been conducted and have shown no correlation between dose and mortality. So that theory has largely been debunked. And we know that that is one of the most important of the Bradfield, Bradford Hill criteria, mm. which, um, which are what we use to determine causality. So if you follow that through, the, you know, a causal link was not proven by that study. And therefore to answer your original question, I think that the wording was poorly chosen. Okay. And so now taking a step forward to Verve 2019, and as the picture now starts to evolve a bit more, um, I think the first day on the first session was all about paclitaxel. Uh, why did you think it was important to invite um, Ian Meredith to talk at that conference? Well, I'd actually been at the FDA panel in Washington, D.C. with Ian, and mm -hmm. um, he had presented a lot of data that Boston had collected of course, you know, he now works for Boston Scientific. Mm. So uh, them having access to a lot of that clinical trial data was important. So not only did I see Ian as being um, somebody who had access to um, data that others didn't, Ian also has extensive experience in the coronary world. And of course, you know that paclitaxel stents were used um, in quite large numbers back at the beginning of the coronary stent revolution. So mm. I thought, Ian had two aspects to offer us. Plus, he's a great thinker and a, a very um, a, a person who's very good at putting the data together and making sense out of it. So he was great to have on the panel back at Verve 2019. Yep. I remember um, he had a slide about um, he presented like a, a graph with all the research produced from cardiology versus uh, vascular surgery and the pie chart from cardiology dwarfed that of vascular surgery. So um, that really sort of stuck out with me as um, an important slide, but also kind of reinforces the importance of what you've done with this paper in terms of, you know, you've taken it upon yourself with others, of, of course, to try and bring some more light to this very important um, area. Have you now um, reintroduced paclitaxel into your practice? Yeah, well, I think immediately after this all happened and when we really um, went into great depth back at that FDA panel, people started to realise there was something else at play here that explained this signal. Um, so it didn't take me long to start to use it in my practice once again. So you've got to remember that the original meta-analysis looked at a predominantly claudicant population. Mm -hmm. So it didn't look at patients with critical limb ischemia. 
and it didn't look at patients with dialysis access. So we really never stopped using it in those two populations of patients. Okay. And in fact, we subsequently published meta-analysis looking in those groups and found no link with mortality. So I think that was borne out right away. Mm. Um, but in terms of the femoropopliteal disease and the claudicant group, um, I, I was wary for quite some time. So I went through uh, uh, extended consent process with patients um, just to cover ourselves off. Mm-hmm. And I used it more selectively in patients that I thought were going to be at high risk of restenosis mm-hmm. or were restenosis already. And that was in line with the, the um, advice we were getting from FDA at that time. So I thought that was a reasonably judicious way to approach it back at the beginning. So how did you have that converse, conversation? Because I, you know, when I was consenting patients for procedures, it's actually very difficult to explain that you know there was a study that was produced that we don't, we have some concerns about its methodology, but this is the finding. How did you work through that? Yeah, you're right. It was a difficult consent process, and it's difficult because. As physicians, we didn't really understand what it meant. So it was very hard to convey that to patients. So I took the approach, well, there's a lot we don't know from this, but there are some things that we do. And I just explained to them what we did know and what we didn't. And that went something along the lines of, there's been a study done by a group overseas who found a concerning signal. And it's a statistical signal that suggests that there may be some link with death. We're using this device. However, we don't know whether it's real or not. But what we do know is that these devices are very effective at reducing your need to have repeat interventions. They're very effective at improving your quality of life. And therefore, I think there are good reasons to use them. And I will use them if I think you're going to get direct benefit from it. Yep. Most people, after discussing it, said, you do what you think is best, doctor. Did you get a similar sort of response from patients? Yeah, almost universally, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I know in Andrew Holden's Charing Cross presentation, he gives a great summary on the paper and some of the initial biases with the Katsanos paper, but would you be able to briefly summarise what were some of the inherent biases within the original analysis that allowed those authors to reach the conclusion they did? Well, um, like any meta-analysis, it really relies on the quality of the data that you put into it. Mm. So if there are methodological flaws or bias brought into the original randomized controlled trials, they'll play out and you'll find a similar bias in the meta-analysis results. And right from the very beginning, we thought there were a couple of reasons to think that it was unlikely this was a real truth, but Mm -hmm. rather um, related to bias. And those reasons were a fewfold. So we saw right away that there was no biologically plausible rational explanation for why this might be happening. So no one could ever provide a reasonable explanation Mm. that already raises concerns. Then we saw no one cause of death that spiked, which you would think would be the case if it was a toxicity problem leading to cancer, for example, or cardiovascular morbidity that you would see that go up. And we didn't see that either. Um, Again, like I said before, we didn't see that dosage gradient response when new studies started to come out. So this was also a concern. Um, and at the end of the day, when we started to collect real world data from really big studies, like enormous studies, we just weren't seeing this signal play out in real time, which made a lot of us very skeptical. 
And then finally, if you look at um, the large IDE trials around the world and you compare different geographies um, of which, I don't know if you know this, but in the US, they tend to lose a lot of patients to follow up in their randomized controlled trials where they lose less in Europe and far less in Japan. And when you looked at these devices across trials that were running US versus Europe versus Japan, you found very different results. In the US, you tended to have this mortality signal. In Europe, it was kind of not seen as much. And in Japan, it was not seen at all, which suggested that it had something to do with the loss to follow-ups that was introducing bias into these results. So um, I guess now going on to the next step, why did you feel as a vascular surgeon and admittedly someone, you know, um, has a busy workload, why did you feel it was important to then answer this question? Well, I think as a scientist, and we're all physician scientists of sorts, um, when you're faced yeah. with um, a result like this from the Katsanos study, and it doesn't make any sense, you're obliged to collect more data until you find the truth. Because we're talking mm. about something pretty serious here, whether or not we're influencing the mortality of our patients. And I think we all want to know what the truth is in this respect. Mm. And then obviously now um, in your study, you had 34 randomized trials and over 7,000 patients. How did you go about getting extra data was it i know obviously some more studies were published um but did you have access to more or did you approach individual authors of some of the original studies how did you help fill that gap and to get the extra patients you know of course we couldn't run the studies ourselves so we had to wait for others to run them and for them to be published or presented um, and so we just kept a close eye on the literature internationally and at large congresses and we had communication with the sponsors to find out when their studies would come to fruition and be presented. So we just waited for what we thought was a critical mass. You know, we saw particularly the Illuminate studies, the EU and the IDE study coming through with large mm -hmm. numbers. And we knew that that would really bolster the number of patients, particularly at the five-year time point, which was um, the group that was found to be highest at risk in the Katsanis meta-analysis. And we thought was probably the most important group to study. So we waited for nine studies to be available at that time point. And you recall that Katsanis only had three studies and one of them only made it to four years, in fact, not five. Mm. Um, and it was only presented at Congress. And in fact, the numbers that were recorded in the original study were wrong. So we thought we could really do much better than that. Yeah. So, so five years, Katsanis had basically 520 patients roughly and in the paclitaxel arm and 330 in the control. And then in your study, roughly 2,000 patients in total. So obviously much more much more greater numbers now at 60 months. Yeah, we had three times the number of studies and we had almost three times the number of subjects. Yep. And at five months, uh, sorry, five years. Um, that was at the five-year time point, yes. Yeah, and you've demonstrated that there was really no difference between the two groups. Yeah, there was very little difference and it was not statistically yeah. significant. So um, that's pretty impressive. You don't often see a turnaround in two meta-analyses that were conducted in exactly the same methodology. You don't often see a turnaround like that just by no, that's a good, adding yeah. additional studies and numbers. 
So I guess now that the picture is perhaps now starting to become more clear, is it time is it time that we move on from this topic or is there still more to discuss here? Well, I think much of the world had already moved on prior to our study being published. So initially I saw that tentatively around the world. Colleagues uh, anecdotally were going back to Paclitaxel and then, um, you know, slowly but surely people became more reassured by that practice from those around them and they felt safer in doing so uh, more aggressively. So I think that most experienced users had pretty much gone back to their pre-Katsanos practice by the time we published our studies. But what I'm hoping is um, from this new data that we've presented that people will be reassured firstly, but also that regulators will take notice and perhaps look at reanalyzing their own data with a view to retracting some of the warnings that have previously been given. And the, the regulators there I'm talking about are mainly the FDA, the MHRA and the TGA. What do you think um, as a profession we've learned from this experience, if anything? Well, I, I think we've learned a lot about clinical trials and their conduct. You know, like you mentioned before, mortality wasn't an endpoint that was powered for. And indeed, it wasn't even an endpoint that we discussed much. It was always in there but no one really gave it that much consideration and no one really thought much about how long we have to follow it out for either. I think if you're running a clinical trial now and you're not going out looking at mortality to five years, you're making a mistake. And if you're hoping it will get FDA approval, it probably won't. So there's that aspect. Um, there's also what we talked about before about losing these patients to follow up and how important it is to maintain as many records as possible, at least with the point of view of their vital status. So, you know, just, confirming that they're alive or dead. Even if patients want to leave the study, um, you can adjust their uh, consent by just saying, you, you know, we're not going to ask you to come back into the office anymore. We're not going to ask for any ultrasounds, but we're going to ring you every year just to make sure that you're alive and we can record mm. that. And, and perhaps yeah. that's something that will be done more and more in clinical trials to come. I think we've also learned some stuff about how best to release this kind of information to the greater vascular community. You know, there's a lot of talk about the right way to put it out there. Um, criticism yeah. was made about just dumping it into a journal article without proper peer review panel discussions and, and the like. You know, mostly we present these things at Congresses and we have a long talk about them before they ever make it into um, the peer reviewed journals. Yeah. That wasn't done in this instance. And, um, yeah, I think it came as a shock to most of us and left us a little bit unprepared for those difficult discussions with our patients. I mean, do you think, you know, the there should have been more editorial control on what was published initially or the editors were within their rights to accept what was written and publish it on its merits? No, I think the editors were definitely within their rights to publish it. It's not up to them to present it beforehand. It's not up to them to conduct the conversations. It's up to them to have it peer reviewed and make sure it's of an acceptable standard. And you could argue that they did that satisfactorily. Um, but I think it's up to the authors. You know, if you find a result which is surprising, number one, um, you have no explanation for number two, and does rock the whole vascular world, number three, there are more judicious ways to release this information and to perhaps 
formulate ways to get to the truth in this sort of scenario where the methodology may have been a big factor, how we could have um, conducted a meta-analysis in a way that would have better gotten us to that truth. Uh, they'd be the main lessons I think we could have learned from this whole experience. Mm. And then what do you think is next for Paclitaxel? Obviously, you know, we've seen that it's reasonably well proven that it reduces um, target lesion restenosis. Do you think now the focus should be on quality of life or um, more concrete data and amputation prevention? or that we should perhaps put this all behind us now and focus on other things? Well, it depends what group of patients you're talking about. So in this Claudican group, I don't think amputation prevention is a great endpoint. You know, you're really looking at mm. patency rates, which um, tell us whether patients need repeat interventions. And that's what we're trying to avoid here by using an anti-proliferative agent. So I think that that's probably the most important primary endpoint. But certainly if you're looking at that CLTI group, then that's a different group entirely. And, and their endpoints are probably related to safety, um, ad, avoidance of major adverse limb events and perioperative death, as well as um, uh, demonstrations of patency as well. So they're a bit more complex a group. But, you know, should we put it to bed or where are we headed? There are the two parts of that question that I took from you. I think it is time to put this to bed to some extent, but perhaps mm. what we have done the group collaborating with industry is we've moved more towards stable coatings for paclitaxel and lower doses. And that might not be a bad thing so long as they're equally as efficacious as the, the higher dose devices. Um, in my opinion, having um, formulations that stick on the balloon and to the vessel wall, but don't shower your runoff is a really good thing. And there's no doubt that there is particulate embolization with some of the earlier generation devices. So that's one thing I think we've taken away from it maybe that's a good thing. There's also been a lot of development into the serolimus and, and analog group of drugs as really potent anti-proliferative agents that have been used extensively in the coronary world and trying to make ways that we can get them onto drug-coated balloons. Um, and there's been some early successes there. So perhaps um, there's been some good things to come out of this whole saga at the end of the day. Yeah. I know this may just be speculation, but do you think by... Many people, and we know um, a lot of people, withdrew paclitaxel from their practice almost immediately. I think at the time I was a registrar at the Alfred and it basically just got removed from the shelves. Do you think there may have been potential increased morbidity and maybe even mortality by um, the removal of paclitaxel from a lot of hospitals overnight almost? Yeah, absolutely. I think it really influenced a lot of hospitals to different degrees. And what we do know is because it reduces the need for reinterventions, then there is a lot less morbidity when you use a paclitaxel coated device compared to an uncoated device. So there was mm. definitely morbidities that occurred out there because people felt that they had to stop immediately. And I'm not criticizing that decision. I think that was a personal decision and it was guided in many parts by the regulatory authorities. Um, but just did that affect our patients' well-being? Did it affect their ongoing health and their need for repeat interventions? Almost certainly it did, and that's done some harm. So, you know, I understand why it happened, but um, I, I certainly wish it hadn't because uh, I think it did a disservice to our patients at the end of the day. Yep. Uh, well, that's 
I think um, that's all excellent. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Varko. But um, before we finish, I'd, I'd really be keen to know what's next on the roadmap for the Verve Conference or given the recent um, events in Victoria and New South Wales, you may not be able to say or you may not know yourself, but um, what's on the roadmap for Verve? Because I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast are certainly uh, avid Verve attenders. Yeah, well, up until recently, we were pretty uh, determined to run a face-to-face meeting in Sydney this year. So um, we'd gone through a relatively unscathed period without a, a, a huge number of outbreaks and until the Delta variant came along, we were feeling pretty confident that that would play out until December. So we had spent a lot of time uh, looking at COVID safety and making sure we could run a meeting that um, that complied with all the regulations. And we were happy that we could. We're about to release a uh, preliminary program and we'll still release that. But I guess the question mark now is, will we be ready to go in December or will the COVID landscape be different again? Um, and that's very hard to predict, of course. Yeah. Some people have gone to virtual symposiums. Um, some people have gone to hybrid symposiums. My personal view is that virtual symposiums uh, don't have the same educational value. I, I think that a lot of the really educational stuff happens in the panel discussions or behind the scenes or in the corridors or you know in the trade area. And that sort of stuff just doesn't happen when you're online. So yeah. whilst they have served the purpose for us over the last 18 months and, you know, kudos to anyone who wants to run a meeting like that, uh, I've never thought it was a great idea. The question will come, if Verve can't run face-to-face this December, what we will do? And I, and the committee that organises the meeting still haven't decided. It's all a bit too fresh at the moment, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. But I think we're all hoping that face-to-face education can continue. And uh, I can speak personally and say I'm missing it terribly, and I'm sure many of your listeners out there are as well. And is uh, Paclitaxel on the agenda again this year, or um, it's going to perhaps have a smaller, smaller component devoted to it, this symposium? Yeah, it'll definitely be on the agenda. In fact, we've got the, the principal investigator for the Swede PAD study giving a, an updated talk on that study, which, as you know, is the the biggest Paclitaxel trial ever conducted. Um, I'll be presenting this information as well. And we've got a lot of world experts who will be recording lectures or doing them virtually uh, from our international friends of Verve. That's been one of the aspects that has been good about not being able to bring over international visitors is that everyone's wanted to put their hands up to at least record a talk, if not um, be on a virtual panel. So it'll be a highlight to see that many international experts giving lectures in Australia. That's great. Well, uh, we certainly look forward to the next Verve conference in uh, no matter what format it's it's held in, certainly. Great. Thanks, Sam. Um, great to be part of your podcast and uh, I look forward to seeing you and as many of your listeners at the symposium in December as, as we possibly can see there. Thank you very much. Thanks again.